Good morning. Some have said that discouragement is Satan's most effective weapon. And I tend to agree with that. But we'd all say it's, uh, it's very easy for even Christians to become discouraged. Keep up with the news, the headlines, they're not uplifting. It's hard to take it all in. I got a line this morning, let's look at some of the latest. The Ethiopian Airlines flight crashes, killing all 157 on board. Been watching the news this week. Tornado kills 23 in Alabama, virtually wiping out the small city of Beauregard. The Tennessean said the I-440 work will not be completed until 2020, impacting 100,000 on average a day. USA Today says number four Tennessee falls to unranked Auburn. <clears throat> Needs LSU to claim SEC title. LSU 80, Vandy 59. <laughs> it's not just the headlines that discourage us, not just national news, personal problems, family difficulties, job pressures, health struggles. I want us to spend the next six to eight weeks talking about studying from the book of 1 Thessalonians because it is a book of encouragement. The theme of the study is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. We know from Acts chapter 17 that Paul had established this church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Paul had a custom, if you recall, of going to the larger areas first. And if the city had a synagogue, he would go there first to teach. And they had one there. Some of the Jewish people believed the gospel and they were encouraged, but there was also opposition. In fact, the opposition was so extreme, Paul and those with him had to leave. So he left behind this church that was new to the faith. And so he received great encouragement when he heard that they were doing well. So in about AD 51, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica to encourage them to be faithful in spite of the rising persecution. And he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5:11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I like Paul's message in this letter because he reminds us that we can be upbeat regardless of our circumstances. So for the next two months, I want us to heed these inspired words and find encouragement for believers today. The first uh, chapter introduces us to a source of encouragement, and that's the title of today's lesson, An Encouraging Church. Look at what Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He opens verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly making mention of you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul obviously had inspired this group of Christians and he was inspired by them as well. He appreciated, as he writes here, their faith in God, their labor of love, and their hope in Jesus' return. It was a tremendous source of encouragement to be a part of a church like that, even though they were young to the faith, even though they were new to believing in Jesus. One author observed that a violin played well is one of the most beautiful instruments. But he also followed that by saying, few instruments that are more unpleasant to hear is a violin played poorly. A bad church experience can be really hard to get beyond. But a good church experience 
can be so inspirational. So Paul was inspired by this church in Thessalonica. So let's see why, and then let's seek to reproduce what was going on there to be what's going on here in our fellowship. So if you fill in the blanks, follow along with me. Notice number one, the encouraging church where the gospel is preached with power. The encouraging church is one where the gospel is preached with power. Look at verses four and five. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, the gospel is good news. You've heard that. But actually, the gospel is good news and bad news and good news and great news. The good news is we're created by a loving God. Man is not some evolutionary accident here without purpose, here without meaning, here without direction. We are here by design. You and I were chosen by God. He created each one of us in his image. And each individual person is known by God and loved by the creator. That's good news. But the bad news is that we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfect. We are sinful, and our sin has left us confused and without direction. And we're pulled in every direction of, of our culture. And we see that more and more. But the good news is that God loves us in spite of our sins. And he reached out to save us through his son, Jesus. You know John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That means God loves you too much to let you spend eternity without him. He wants you to be with him. So Jesus came to earth to pay the price for your sin, to die on the cross for you, so that God could bring him back to life. And we believe that Jesus is our savior. He accepts us as his child. Our sins are washed away in baptism. We are given the Holy Spirit. And the great news is that this gift of salvation is absolutely free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It is a gift. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You don't punch your ticket. Coming to church doesn't get you to heaven. We receive it by faith. It's a free gift offered by God because he loves you that much. The very first gospel sermon, you remember, ended like this, Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel begins with bad news that man has a sin problem and there's no way for him to escape on his own. But the good news is that Jesus has provided a way out by giving his own life. Now, if a person is spiritually asleep, they don't want you to wake them up. They don't want you to bother them. They're enjoying that slumber. So they don't want to hear about Jesus or about death or even about grace because they're enjoying their sleep. But the truth is, if they don't wake up, they're going to be trapped in their sin for all eternity. Romans 13 verse 11 says, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than now, now than when we first believed. So an encouraging church is one where the gospel is preached really over and over. 
Because we never moved beyond the good news. Paul said it like this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and following. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and in which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But there are some churches that are not preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus. There are some legalistic churches that will preach a doctrine of work salvation, that you've got to do things in order to be saved. But legalism has no joy because you know you can never do enough. You'll never believe everything correctly. There's so many doctrines of scripture. How can you possibly have a perfect understanding of them all? So you have no joy. On the other hand, more and more churches are becoming more liberal in their teaching and their beliefs. They no longer believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. They no longer believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God. They're not preaching the gospel as much as they're preaching a social gospel. So people in those churches are discouraged because deep down, they know man cannot save himself Listen to the words of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. We can be thankful for every church that is faithfully preaching the gospel And it has nothing to do with the size of the church or the location of the church. It has everything to do with the beliefs of the people and what those who are teaching are sharing. There is something about the truth from the Bible. When it is taught, when it is studied, when we're fed, we're encouraged. There's something about Scripture that resonates with us. When you you read a Scripture, you hear someone talk about it, and there's something where it just connects with you down deep, your own sense of what is right and what is correct and justice and hope. That is the Holy Spirit teaching us. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul says, when the gospel is preached with power, it's not just with words. But that being said, let's be real. We've also been at places where the preaching is not encouraging, where it's discouraging. Maybe it's irrelevant. Maybe it's just boring. So Paul gives three qualifiers that makes a difference between just saying the words and powerful preaching. Number one, he says, with the Holy Spirit. Verse five, it says, the gospel came in power and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's hard to quantify and that's even hard to define. But perceptive Christians can tell when the Holy Spirit is working in the teaching, when that person who is teaching the class or preaching the sermon, if they're just mouthing the words or if they believe what they're saying. When the word is taught, the Holy Spirit's power convicts. It teaches us. That's what it does. You ever been listening to a sermon and and you think somebody's been listening to our house? We're talking about a situation. You think, man, they've got a a microphone listening in. It's almost like the preacher knows exactly what I'm going through. He doesn't. 
but the Holy Spirit does. That's where the Holy Spirit is teaching you the truth, opening your eyes, reaching to your heart. That is the Spirit doing its job. When we rely on the Holy Spirit's power, we don't need slick arguments. We don't need persuasive speech. We don't need eloquence. You just share the truth. You do so in love. You do so in simplicity. And that's where the gospel has its power. Paul talked about this for himself. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 4. And when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So it's not just about you saying the right thing, or you getting it all in the correct order, or you just saying things just right. Maybe you've heard the illustrations like this. You're on a burning bus, and somebody is sleeping, you would not go up to them and say, pardon me, sir, I don't want to disturb your repose, but this vehicle upon which we have been involved in this magnificent excursion has but, has but undertaken a conflagration. And I'm of the persuasion that it would be wise for you to disembark post-haste. No, you're going to go and say, hey, the bus is on fire. We got to get out. Come this way. You're not worried about arguments. You're not worried about speech. You just want to share the truth in the way that the person can understand. When the gospel is preached in the Holy Spirit, it's presented simply and with clarity. So the one wanting to know the truth can't miss it. It's not hard to understand. Even children can understand it. It is the truth of God in power. And then number two, powerful preaching is also a deep conviction. Paul says the gospel came with full conviction. It's not just saying the right words. You have to believe them. They have to be yours. You have to absorb them. They have to make a difference in your life. It's reflected not just in the way you talk, but also in the way you, you live, the choices you make. You know, the more and more I watch the news, read the news, I'm convinced that, that there is truth, but it's rare that one news report has all the truth. You know what I'm talking about? Because if it's presented from one side, then they present that angle. Or if it's presented from the other side, they present the other angle. It's like whoever is making the report, whoever's writing the article, they want you to see things their way instead of just saying, here are the facts and, and you decide from those facts. So instead of truth, what we get in our daily life is, is confusion or half-truths or people who are trying to get us to see things their way. Have you heard about the Michael Jackson documentary? It's on HBO. I don't get HBO. I don't watch that. But there's been a lot of talk in the news about that. She and I were watching a news story about that. And they showed a clip of Michael Jackson himself denying ever abusing a child. To never would do that, he said. Show the video clip of him doing that. And in the very next sentence, Michael Jackson himself said there's nothing wrong with him sleeping in his bed with the child. Said that. Now, the medical doctor was on the show. Maybe you saw it as well. No religious background, nothing from that standpoint. 
But the doctor just said, no, 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 no. He said, there's no reason for a 30-year-old man to have a young boy in his bed. And then he made this comment. The world is waking up to just how bad things have become. And I was listening to that just thinking, you know, there is a sense of right. And people who don't even believe in God know there is a sense of right. That's what we're talking about here. God's word is true. And the only hope for this world is Jesus Christ. And he's got good news. His word is truth. And we've got to be convicted of that. And then number three, preaching must be done with integrity. He said in verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know, when you admire somebody, maybe a favorite singer or a band or an athlete or maybe an author, so you've been to the game, you've been to the concert, you've read their books. If you ever go to an autograph signing, you get to see them up close. And sometimes that can be a good thing because they are just the same as they are up close as they are on stage or on the court or on the field. And you love that, you know, because it's affirming. But sometimes... You get up close and you see her makeup and it is just beyond belief. Or or maybe he's rude and arrogant and so full of himself and you're kind of dejected because that's not kind of what you envision them being like, but you've got to see them up close. Paul was talking about, you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There's no gap between what we're saying and how we live We teach this, but we believe this. We want you to believe it too. We want you to live and follow Jesus as we're following Jesus. They lived that message. They had that integrity. William Barclay said, a man's life will always be heard in the context of his character. So as we preach and teach the gospel with power, it must be done with the Holy Spirit, conviction, and integrity. So an encouraging church is not just one where The gospel is preached with power, but it's also where the gospel is received with joy. And this is where all of us get to be a part of this. Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There are some congregations that do not receive the message with much joy. When I share a joke in a lesson, you are so kind and you laugh, or you at least give me a little humorous snicker, you know, and, and you're kind to me. And I've learned through the years that sometimes humor can, can help with the lesson. It can uh, break the ice or, or get people comfortable, or, or sometimes, especially when you're dealing with a hard subject, to kind of lighten the mood just a bit. A few years ago, I may have told you this, I was asked to speak at the last minute on a Wednesday night for a church They uh, had a cancellation. They called me to to jump in, and they said, look, I know it's last minute, so you can just preach on whatever you want to to teach on. So I looked at what I had taught the Sunday before here, and I thought, well, that lesson might work. And I was looking through there, and I opened with a joke, and you all laughed really well at that joke. And I thought, well, that'll be good, so I'll do that. And and so I started that message, and it was kind of already in my head because I just preached it the Sunday before, and I I shared the joke, and nothing. It was like crickets, and I thought, I am in trouble. Because not everybody receives the message with joy. I've always heard of the frozen chosen, and I was standing right before them. (laughs) You are so kind. You laugh at my jokes. You receive the truth with joy. 
and you spoil me. But maybe you've been at churches too where you walk in and there's not a spirit of joy with those people. You know, not just when this preaching is, you just kind of feel it. And just the opposite. You know, when people are glad to be there, there's a lot of talking going on. It's, it's, it's a wonderful atmosphere. There's joy in there. It's not just difficult for the one speaking. It's not good for others who are listening as well. When somebody comes in and they're hungry to hear from the word of the Lord, and they sit beside somebody who's not tuned in, they're not listening, they're talking, they're, they're doing all kinds of things, looking at their phone, just so maybe head in their hands, just so distracted. They, that person can't help but watch that and get the idea that, well, nothing is important being said here. But the Thessalonian church was encouraged. They received the message with joy. Look what he wrote to them in the second chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as word of man, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And that's the way it works. People see something in you that makes them want to listen to what God has to say. They see something the way you live that makes them want to think, well, what is God saying? What's the message? Notice that their response in turn encouraged Paul and everyone around them. J. Wallace Hamilton tells about a young man who grew up in a Christian home, but when he left for college, going to church just kind of didn't become a priority for him. One day he decided to go to worship, and that Sunday morning his faith was renewed. But it had nothing to do with the sermon at all. In fact, it happened even before the sermon started. It wasn't the prayer. It was when he bowed his head during the prayer. He bowed his head and looked over to the side, three rows back, and he saw his chemistry professor. With his head bowed, just nodding in agreement with the prayer, saw his chemistry professor mouth the words, amen. And that young man thought, if that man in all of his wisdom can believe, I can believe. He was encouraged. Now, that professor didn't have any idea that he was even being watched. But his coming to worship and being part of it, participating, bowing his head, was so encouraging to that young man. That's why the verses Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 are so important. You know these. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me just take a moment and share a couple of tangible suggestions of how you and I can receive the message with joy and be an encouragement to other people. Number one, you come with a spirit of anticipation. You look forward to it. You know, if you're looking for a red car, you go out and drive home looking for a red car, you will find a red car. If you're reading something, you're looking for a misspelled word, you're going to find a misspelled word. It's just the way it is. You, you find what you're looking for. If your default mindset is to see the negative, see the mistakes, the ugly, you're going to find it, even at church. Contrast that to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Hungering, thirsting, what you're looking for is what you want. So you come with a spirit of anticipation. So as you get up in the morning, as you get out of the car, as you take your seat, just say, Lord, I am hungry. 
What do you need to fill me with today? I want to be filled with your truth. When the scripture reader gets up to read, you listen as if that's God's word to you. Because that's what it is. It is his word to you. When I was a young teenager, I was mentored by a, a missionary named Jake. One of the things I appreciated about him is his, his personal relationship with the Lord that was just so evident. And I saw it in a very tangible way because he had an engraved Bible, not with the usual, his name at the bottom, but it had on his Bible, the Holy Bible from God to Jake Paget. And that stuck with me. And that's really what it is. It's his word to you. So as you come to worship, go to Bible class, you bring your Bible, you open it up to the text, you be ready. Have a spirit of anticipation. In our precept class on Wednesday night, we begin every Wednesday night praying that the Holy Spirit would teach us. Because that's what the Bible says, that's his role. He teaches us the word of God. So number two, listen attentively. Some of you say that you listen better with your eyes closed. But I'm not buying that. I know sometimes there's medicine or you're up with a child during the night and for sure you get an, ex an excuse for that. But that's not most of you. You know what I'm talking about. If your head is buried in your hands, you're looking out, you're distracting others. Listening takes effort. So focus your attention. And number three, even respond to the message. And really, that just goes for all of worship. You respond, you be a part of it. You know, people used to say amen uh, a lot during sermons. We don't do that as much. But even by your posture, even by your countenance, nodding your head, smiling. And it's not just for, for the one speaking. Other people see that too. They see that you're engaged, and that wants them to also be engaged. And part of responding is recognizing the different moods in a service. Solomon says, for everything, there's a season, a time, and a matter under heaven, time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to keep silence, time to speak. Some people believe there is never an appropriate time to clap in a service. And others are so happy to clap, like after a baptism or, or after someone shares a, a great milestone or some good news and we show our support with that. I think applause can be a natural response to what your heart is feeling. And the Bible talks about that. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. That being said, there's also times where you shouldn't clap. You kind of respond to what's going on in the service. Change of mood. Maybe a quiet, reflective song. Maybe you're preparing for communion. I can remember when I was in college going to a church and hearing the preacher say that when you enter the building to worship, you should be silent and not talk to anyone. Just sit in your pew and get ready to worship. I thought, well, that's a good point. But I also noticed that when people are visiting with each other, exchanging greetings with each other, seeing friends that you love and care for, maybe making that, that guest feel welcome. You get four or 500 people doing that and it makes some noise. But I think that can also anticipate or get your heart ready for worship. Because when you sit down, you know you're with people who are, they're glad you're there and you're glad to be there. And so that can be a part of that anticipating your worship together. 
Some people don't think we should be laughing at church. I've been told that. No humor is good in the sermon at all. Yet Solomon said there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And I'm so grateful that you enjoy laughing. I think it communicates joy. I think it communicates authenticity. I think it's just a healthy thing for us all. You know, Proverbs 17, 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Very quickly, I tell you this. One preacher told about they were preparing for a baptism at the end of the service, and they came to him and said the woman that was going to be baptized wanted to play her harmonica after her baptism. And so the preacher said, well, tell her she can't do that. They said, well, we did, but we think you need to tell her. So he went back, and he knew the woman. She had some emotional issues, and she'd been known to go from church to church. And, and so he was just trying to be patient with her. And, and she said, why can't I play my harmonica? And so he gave a really good theological answer. Well, if we let you play your harmonica, we can let everybody play their harmonica. That never works, does it? He said, we just want you to repeat the good confession. And so she did with a lot of enthusiasm. Everything uh, the minister said, she said it really loud. And he baptized her and she came up and, and she said, do it again, do it again. And everybody just busted out laughing and, and, and clapping. And, and I thought about that. I thought, was that sacrilegious? Was that irreverent? I think God knew their heart. And they were celebrating with that woman. They were joyful with her. Paul tells us the Thessalonians had a spirit of joy. So laughter then, it doesn't come from inappropriate jokes or at the expense of another person's character. There's a deep inner contentment we're talking about here, a peace. That's what the gospel does. It gives you that deep joy. Jesus had given them eternal life. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. God had promised that he would never leave them. They knew that no matter how bad things got, they were going to be okay. And that gave them a spirit of joy. So it's good for us to laugh. It's also good for us to be silent. Sometimes we don't do well with silence. But again, sometimes after that reflective song, or even as you're taking communion, that time of quiet may just be what you need in your worship with God. And it can be a beautiful thing. And then number four, pray when the message is over. I know some of you have been in church all your life, and you've been through untold invitation songs that it becomes routine, and you're not even really thinking about it. So it's time to get your clothes all situated, tuck your shirt back in, get your skirt right, all that. Start gathering your stuff. It's kind of what we do, and I get that. But I want to remind you, that is something that we created, an invitation song, because it's a moment of decision. And we don't have as many public responses as we used to have, you might say, as far as people coming forward. But let's not discount decisions being made that may not at all even need a walk forward. And it may not even be related to the sermon. Maybe some young person was encouraged by somebody else and their faith was renewed. Just seeing them here that day, like that young man. Maybe it was something in the prayer. Maybe it was something in the scripture where they were making a decision. Maybe they were convicted by the Holy Spirit that they need to go make things right with a brother or a sister. And that's a moment of decision. 
I think you've heard me to say, people get up and leave during the sermon. I, I don't even notice that. Sometimes people will apologize. I hope you didn't mind me getting up and leaving. You know, this happened, that happened. A lot of times I will look the other way. If somebody's walking out this door, I'll look over this way. Now you see it more than I see it. It doesn't bother me at all. But may I encourage you, if you need to leave before the sermon's over, leave before the sermon's over. Don't leave during the invitation song. Sometimes we think that's a good time to get up and leave. Let me encourage you not to do that. Because there may be somebody between them and God making a decision. And we don't want to distract them from that. King David said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Paul said, I thank God for you because you received the word with joy and the Holy Spirit. So encouraging. One more thing. An encouraging church is where the gospel is shared with success. Look how he ends the chapter, verse 7 and following. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this church in Thessalonica, they were not just receiving the gospel with joy. They were sharing the gospel. It made a difference in their lives. See, when a church is focused on itself, it's so discouraging. There's no excitement. There's no guests. There's no visitors. There's no growth. But the church in Thessalonica, they were sharing the message with others. Paul said, we don't have to tell anybody about it because they've already heard about it. How you've left idols and now you're serving the true God. That phrase he used sounded forth. It means sounded like a trumpet. A clear and decisive sound. People took note of this church. They did not just keep the good news to themselves. They were sharing it with others. I get so encouraged when I hear that about you. The good things that you're doing. Two of our ladies just returned from serving orphans in the mountains of Honduras. Several of our members just this past week went to Peru to be a part of a medical clinic. I think 19 from West 7th are making their plans to go to Mexico during their spring break. Using their money, their vacation time, their spring break to serve the Lord. Michael and Chris Bowen are finishing their five years in Laos, even as we speak. They're coming home. They'll be with us next month. It's so good. You think about it, it is rare for us to gather on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any time and not hear an announcement or reading the bulletin about some opportunity for us to serve our city, to serve a school for some opportunity. In fact, you might even get weary of hearing those opportunities because we're doing it all the time. But how encouraging is that when people see us serving other people, opening our doors to those who need help, serving our city, helping those that otherwise wouldn't get help. It is so encouraging to know the gospel is not just staying in these walls, but we're getting it out. But the one factor that made the Thessalonian church so evangelistic was that the gospel changed their lives. I want to make sure you get that. That was what it made the difference. Paul said, I don't have to say anything because the word is out. You turn from idols to the one true God. John Stott says the most effective evangelistic program is rumor evangelism. What are people saying? What's the talk of the town? 
Did you see the Daily Herald this week, Carmack Boulevard Church of Christ, front page, serving some of our young people in the city. I love that. Doing things that people are talking. What's going on in that church? Why are they opening their building? Why do they go there? What's happening? What do they teach? What do they believe? Who are these people? Now, rumors are not always positive. Paul's really upfront about that. Everybody in Thessalonica knew why Paul had to leave. Because of the uprising, not everybody was excited about it. Acts 17, 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's what they said about Paul. So not everybody wants the gospel to succeed. But when they see you, a life that's changed, someone who does the right thing, someone who's serving others, Someone who's turned from the idols of materialism and selfishness and serving Jesus, they can't help but notice that. Put on the screen where we began. Encourage one another with these words. Last week, you were so kind to Jake and Barkley, my son and and new daughter-in-law. Thank you for that. If you missed last week, um, there was a time during the coffee fellowship where people gave them um, cards and money and gift cards. You know, Owens's are all about the gift cards. (laughs) But they were overwhelmed, overwhelmed with your kindness. So thank you for that. And we get to do it again today for Chamberlain and and Hunter. Um, What a marvelous young couple. I went into the office this morning to get something and they had gone to, the women who were helping with that had gone to You Peddler to get all the gifts that were bought. Folks, it looks like You Peddler is in our church office. It is full of gifts. And what a wonderful way to celebrate and encourage this young couple. But last Sunday, what I also noticed was not just how kind you were to those who were special to me. We got word about the sewing ministry, a little bit about that. And if you recall, there was a display out there. And, and I walked into the room, and I was checking on Jake and Barkley for a moment, seeing people love on them. And then I looked over, and I saw all the buzz at that table, just looking at what's happening with our sewing ministry. And then I saw the room just full of talking and encouraging, and I thought, that's good. If you've ever lived in a town where the church is small or struggling, to see that kind of sight where people love on each other, and encourage one another, it is a beautiful thing. When I was reading Paul's words, I don't know how exactly Paul felt about the Thessalonian church, but I feel so similar. I'm so encouraged by you, the good that you do, your faithfulness, the way you love people, the way you serve people. And we need to thank God that we're part of a church, that we've received the gospel with joy, and it's made a difference in our lives, and we can't keep it to ourselves. Our invitation song is to encourage you to accept the good news. We've talked about that. Once you come as we stand and sing.